0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at
1: RedeemerOhio.org. Okay. Well, the second commandment, we're looking at questions 49 to 52. (laughs) So if you have your little book, you can turn to those pages or if you need one, there's a, there's a, the books are up front here. So we're looking at the second commandment and it says which is the second commandment? And of course, the answer given in the King James language, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So this is quite a commandment. The first, you remember, forbids the worshiping A false god, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment forbids worshiping God with false means. So we have the object of worship and the mode of worship. As the first pointed out, the object, this one indicates the only right mode. And there is a right mode of worship. It's not just anything you please, which I think really does characterize some of modern evangelicalism. As long as I'm sincere, it's okay. God accepts anything I offer. And of course, that's not true, and the story of Cain and Abel is a perfect example. Uh, They both offered. They both came to worship, but only one of them had acceptable worship. And part of that reason was because, not just because Cain didn't have faith, but also because his sacrifice was bloodless. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he offered vegetables. Abel offered his sacrifice, and his was accepted. Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thank you, Lord. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And I underline that word acceptable because if there is such a thing called acceptable worship, there is also, by implication, something called unacceptable worship. He's making a distinction there, and there's all kinds of things associated with that word. Not not to mention uh, the manner of worship, which is the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Empty. Meaningless. If you come before the Lord in worship, worshiping the right object of worship, God, with the right means of worship, those things prescribed. But your heart is not right. You're violating the third commandment. You're taking his name in vain. It's worthless. It's empty. So acceptable worship has to be offered with reverence and awe, and also with the right means. Only worship that is expressly commanded by God is acceptable or well-pleasing to the Father. That word acceptable in the original language means technically well-pleasing. I think the translation is good, because if it's well-pleasing to the Father, that's acceptable. So the translation is right, Acceptable worship, but it's also this idea that this is what pleases the Father. You remember what it says when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he at one point said, Well, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. He's seeking those. He wants his worshipers, but they need to worship in spirit and truth by the Holy Spirit according to truth not according to the human whims that might come along. This is one of the longest commandments. It contains important reasons to support it. And there's a great deal, I think, of spiritual and practical value associated with the second commandment. Any comments or questions after this introductory stuff? Okay? Now, Lutherans... (coughs) And Roman Catholics divide the commandments differently. If you look at either a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic list of the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that they're numbered differently. They identify three about the duty to God and seven about our duty to men. Now, we identify four with the duty to God and six. They believe that the First and Second Commandments are actually merged into one. The second, then, is simply an appendix or a supplement to illustrate the first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shouldn't bow down or worship anything else. So, of course, when the Puritans got a hold of this, they accused the Lutherans and Roman Catholics, high church people, of... Merging the second into the first to cover up their use of images. Now, whether or not that's the reason, that's what they accuse them of. So then they divide what we identify as the tenth commandment into two separate commands: Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, man, servant, maid servant, ox, ass, or anything that's thy neighbor's. That's how they end up with ten. The Jews actually, I believe, use the preface as their first commandment. So they have a different numbering altogether as well. But apparently in this particular division, their ninth forbids coveting their material property, and the tenth living in organic property. That's the only thing I can come up with. I'm not sure why they could divide the tenth into two. But there are two imperatives there. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet. I suppose that's one of the reasons why the great Augustine, one of our heroes, numbered it this way, because he said the second commandment simply illustrates the first. He also claimed that having three commands concerning our duty to God points us to the Trinity. Uh, I'm not sure that's very helpful, but that's what he said. There are actually more than 14 imperatives in this passage, Exodus 21 to 17, which contains the Ten Commandments, and yet Scripture teaches that there are only ten. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So we have to come up with (laughs) ten. That's the idea. You have 14 imperatives, 14 commands, 10 commandments. What do you do? Well, you can see they did it this way, we do it differently. Any questions so far on the numbering? <clears throat> I just bring this up because some people are confused, you know, when they see this different kind of division when we talk about the first and the second. Okay. We understand that the second commandment is distinct, and I'll get to the reasons why in a second. John?
0: Um go so far in saying that these are types of, of rules. They're, they're, they're pointing to a broad, a broad application
1: do, would other denominations and Catholics also see that as well or oh, yeah. A narrow no, they would do the same thing they would absolutely say that the Ten Commandments cover all of life you know, they, they would expound it they would say these are broad commandments, <clears throat> they just number it differently, and they don't see the second with images and things like that being distinct And again, this is one of the reasons why the Puritans just had a field day, you know, accusing particularly Romans about covering up their tracks with their use of images and icons and all that kind of stuff, yeah. But they would expound it very similarly, all of life. So the second commandment we believe regulates how you and I worship the true and living God. It forbids making, using, promoting images for worship or discipleship. So notice it's not just the public formal worship of God. We're not talking just about the sanctuary worship, although that's prominent. It's also the work of the church, the teaching arm of the church. It's discipleship, Matthew 28, 19. The, fi- the primary function of the church is to make disciples of all nations and you can't go about that particular function of the church the commission and violate the tenth commandment in that or the second commandment in that commission it implies that we may use and advocate the ordinances that God appoints he's in charge both the who and the how are addressed which is one of the reasons that we divide the first two who Commandment one. How you do this, Commandment two. You do not draw near to a thrice holy God in any way you please. He tells sinners how they can come before Him and ascribe worth to His name. He tells us, we don't tell Him. Some worship the wrong God Jews, liberals, pagans, with the wrong means. Same people. Others worship the right God, Roman Catholics, Orthodox Greek, and so forth, with the wrong means. You know, they they worship the Trinitarian God, or they claim to, but they have the totally wrong means. One way to understand the numbering of the first five is based on the reasons that are annexed to each. Why would we do this? Is there anything in the text that tells us that these five commandments, and the first and second particularly, are distinct? Well, the reasons. You have the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods. Before me, before my face, in my presence, there's a reason. I am God. You are not to do this before me. I watch all things and I take special notice of the sin of having any other God. There's a reason for the first commandment. The second commandment, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, so forth. There's a reason for this second commandment and how we worship Third commandment, fourth, fifth. They each have a reason. So if each of the five commandments has a reason, then we would say you divide first and second because of that fact. It doesn't make any sense to combine the commandments one and two if each of those has a reason just like the others. So that's one of the reasons why we divide the first and the second. Any questions on the numbering? We're going to get away from this after this slide, but... Rob? Um, what do you
0: mean by means? As uh, so we talked about the Jews um, you
1: know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's take the Roman Catholic position. They worship the right God. They would affirm the Apostles' Creed. They would affirm a triune God. The Jews, they deny the triune God. They believe in one God, and Jesus is no part of it. The Catholics believe in the triune God. So the Jews, wrong God. Catholics, right God. Uh, Wrong means. The Jews do not take anything in the name of Christ and use the ordinances of Christ as appointed. Wrong means. The Catholics, they would have the wrong means. Images, pictures, uh, various practices that they have in worship. Wrong means. Not prescribed by God. So the means of worship. How are we going to ascribe worth to this great God? Well, he gives us ways to do that. Means. Yeah. Okay. So the duties required. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. So we worship according to the way and with the means that God appoints. I've often used, it's not silly, but it's kind of shallow, an illustration for giving a birthday party for your spouse. You don't, well, you shouldn't throw the party and do things that you like. If you're going to have a party, you do things that she or he likes, right? Or if you're going to get a gift. If I was going to get a gift for Linda for Christmas, I probably wouldn't buy her a fishing rod. That's not something that she would like. I'd buy something she likes. If you're going to worship the Lord God, you don't do something you like that makes you feel good. You do something that he likes. More importantly, he commands the means appointed by God for his worship are all his ordinances prescribed in his word prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ that is a means of worship you go before God in prayer in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of your sins and thankful acknowledgement of, of his mercies the reading preaching and hearing of the word that's an ordinance that god gives and how to worship that's why we have one guy standing up front and the rest of us sit and listen that's an ordinance that god's appointed the administration and receiving of the sacraments church government and discipline you might not think of that in this area but it is it's part of the, it's an ordinance of God to disciple his people. So you see how it broadens out. It's not just public worship. It's the commission of the church to make disciples. The ministry and the maintenance thereof. That's why we have ministers. That's why we pay them. Religious fasting, it's not something we do regularly, but it is an ordinance that God has appointed for extraordinary times. Swearing by the name of God, vowing unto Him. We have church membership vows. This morning we'll have a baptismal vow made on behalf of one of the covenant children. That is an ordinance of worship disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship and removing it. So part of the membership vow that you and I take, do you promise to study the the peace and purity of the church? Thank you. that word study is not just to contemplate it. It's an old-fashioned use of the term. It means to pursue it. You are to pursue the peace and purity of the church. So if there's anything going on in worship, particularly that's false, contrary to the word of God, it's your responsibility to approach me or any of the leaders. What are we doing? What's that picture doing up there on the wall? That's not purity in worship. So we all have that responsibility, but us especially, the leaders of the church especially, we're judged more strictly. Any questions on the duties required from that particular list? Okay? To these appointed ordinances, God has attached a promise to bless. Now that's important Because it takes faith to do the things we do and not other things. You believe that God promises to bless these things. Worship is kind of austere here. Let's face it, there's not a lot of bells and whistles out there. But we believe God has promised to bless these things. The world scoffs at them? Okay, we believe that he blesses them. These are those things which his spirit will use to save and sanctify. It may seem kind of strange to have a little snack every Sunday morning. It may seem strange to listen to a guy preach every single morning. But we do it in obedience and by faith in the promise of God. And we've seen, I mean, again, and I've said this many times before, we... For 28 years, we've not really done anything different. We've kind of operated on this philosophy of ministry. So because there's been growth, it certainly can't be attributed to us. (laughs) We've not done anything differently. God just decided, okay, now's the time. We'll just bring some more folks. And it's been wonderful. Self-made religion. That's a phrase Paul uses in Colossians 2. In other words, things that you want to come up with, has no value in edification and sanctification. You might do them, and you might feel all the warm fuzzies, but has no value in sanctifying you. That's why we have to cling closely to the Word of God. True devotion to Christ cannot be expressed through such means, self-made religion, We ought to engage in his appointed ordinances with an expectation of spiritual blessing. The Lord Jesus promises to be with us always, and this is especially true with regard to public worship. He's talking with, you know, Matthew 28, 20, I'll be with you always. And he says, where two or three are gathered, I'm there in your midst. Um, That's a promise that he's here. You can't see him, but faith sees the unseen things because they're eternal. And it's one reason why the early Christians devoted themselves to the means of grace. Rob, this gets back to your question, the means, the means of grace. How does Jesus convey true grace to his people? Well, he does it through the means that he appoints. He doesn't just snap his fingers and it's there. For whatever reason, according to his infinite wisdom, he's decided that he's going to use ordinary means to do this extraordinary work. So over the years, and Mark Van always likes to use the illustration of a meal. Like over the years, you know, Sarah has cooked for him meal after meal after meal. They're ordinary. Some meals are better than others, but it's the ordinary nourishment that he gets over the years that has kept him going. And it's the same here. God uses these ordinary means. Some meals are better than others, but he sustains us. (laughs) You lay an egg one week... The next week, you fly off the mountain, whatever. We have every reason to expect that God's Spirit will richly bless the very means He's appointed. You see, that's an element of faith. If we come expectant, you come expecting God to bless. Not just showing up, which is important to show up, but I mean, the Lord is going to do something here today. We're going to leave nourished and changed people. We shouldn't walk out the same. Now, I'm not sure what all that means. It doesn't necessarily mean you feel something differently. It just means maybe you've had an insight. Maybe you've grown in your appreciation. Maybe you've been encouraged. Whatever it is, God uses it to nourish, strengthen, encourage, and change, and to give you an eternal perspective. I love the Psalm 73, you know, Asaph is struggling because he's looking out on the landscape And he sees the wicked prospering. These liars, these deceivers, all these people are getting rich. They're enjoying the good things of life. And here I am trying to be faithful to God, and I'm in poverty. What's going on? And it wasn't until he goes into the sanctuary, he hears a sermon on hell, and he realizes that this is not something that he needs to be bent out of shape about. I see their end, they're going to perish. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to see God. My Redeemer lives. So it's being reminded, encouraged, strengthened, that kind of thing. The Bible teaches that we may view them as pledges of God's covenantal favor and nourishment. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you sit in that Lord's Day sanctuary and you hear the word of God read, preached, sung, it's the power of God. That'll change you. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, excuse me, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's more to it than just thinking about Jesus. It's a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's a cup of blessing. There is rich blessing to be had. And if you come expectant, God will bless that act of faith. Any questions on these duties?
2: Right. So can we can stay in your heart from here, from... Entering into the the grace of your heart is either soft or to the same God, or if you're not a believer's
1: heart. I'm sorry, you're saying will, will the heart become softer, hardened, or you enter with a softer, hardened? Both?
2: By oh, the God, yeah. Preach preach, word of God. And, and Before, if you're not a believer, ever so slightly you'll notice
1: it leaving, but it's hardened. Right, absolutely. The ordinances themselves and the word in particular will have its effect. So nobody enters into the sanctuary and sits under the preaching of the word and is not affected, either softened or hardened, or left unexcusable. And on the day of judgment, if that person who remains impenitent shows up at the bar of justice, and he will, God will say, what did you do with that sermon on January 22nd, 2023? I gave you that exposure, and you scorned it. You rejected it, and there will be no excuse. But, you know, God does use it to soften the hard heart, and so I'd rather have the person in worship under the word than anywhere else. That's something that only God can do. We can't soften our own hearts. It's not like I can somehow generate a soft heart. If you have a soft, tender heart, if your conscience is tender, thank God, that's a work of grace. It's nothing you've done. We can't boast about that. Any other questions on the duties right now? Rob? Go for
2: Eric.
1: Ernie, yeah. Did Ernie have his... Oh, Eric. Sorry.
2: Um, so... You briefly touched on sort of the modern evangelical church kind of not necessarily saying that the means matter a lot. And clearly, I find myself wanting to defend the means because I see that of, of great importance. But am I obligated to be defensive of that? Or like how do we reconcile? a branch of the church that says, well, the means aren't important as long as it's genuine. Right. And clearly here we're stating the means are very important, it's the second command.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, we're gonna to get to it, I think, but the idea is according to your place and calling. So like what happened in the Reformation early on was they would like run into these churches and just smash all the idols and the statues and stuff. I don't think that was the right way to go about it, right, iconoclasts. I think whatever authority you have in your your sphere, whether family, church, or state, you exercise that authority winsomely in a way that you can lawfully remove the monuments of idolatry. So in your family, you don't have monuments of idolatry. You don't have means that are not appointed by God, for example... um, you stick to the means. In your church, you do what you can. So as a member, like I said, you have a vow. You approach the leadership. What are you doing? The second commandment forbids whatever whatever it is that we're doing, you know. But again, we, we do everything indecently and in order, especially in the church, and I think it's according to your place and calling. I don't have authority to render decisions or verdicts in the state. Right. So I can't, I can give advice, I can counsel my councilmen, I can do things like that, but I don't have the authority to make those kinds of decisions, so I do what I can. And there's no false guilt. Let's go back to Rob and then we'll go to Laura. Um,
2: could you speak to some of the of the fathers on the children? Yeah.
1: So I
0: feel like I'm giving messing
1: my children up because
0: um, <laughs> is there any
1: hope or, I can just explain it. we all mess our children up believe me But and there's much hope yes I think what he's getting at there because in Ezekiel he does say look the fathers pay the price of their own sins and the sons don't pay the price of the father's sins he makes a distinction there I think what this is getting at is look let's say you're in the mafia which is a criminal thing, criminal activity, and it's accepted and even promoted in the family. So it's far easier for your children to get sucked in the mafia than other children because it's part of your family culture. If you're going to a church where this stuff is... Accepted, promoted, acknowledged, then it's far easier for our children to embrace it and not repent of it than other children. So that's kind of like this idea that generationally it affects, it has impact upon multiple generations. I don't think God is sitting there saying, well, because Rob didn't do this, I'm going to curse his kids. And that's not what he's saying here. Hopefully that's helpful. But believe me, we all need grace as parents, right? We make mistakes. Laura? I don't
2: know if this fits here, but when I attended churches in suburban Philadelphia, that were older, they all had
0: kneeling benches. Mm-hmm. What happened to that in
1: part of worship? That's a circumstance. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with kneeling, but it is a circumstance, like how, how bright the lights should be, how many chairs you have, what time you meet on That's a circumstance of worship. And we say circumstances are to be implemented according to wisdom and prudence. If you have kneelers, great, kneel. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But we wouldn't say that's an ordinance that was demanded in Scripture, because if we said that, then we'd have to have kneelers in every pew, in every church. But it's circumstantial. Okay? So you can have kneelers. You don't have to. You can stand when they read the Word of God, as some churches do. You can sit when they read the Word of God. That's a circumstantial type thing. John? Oh, is it? Oh, I'm sorry, Bruce? Bruce?
0: In the liberal church where the means have been compromised in the mindset of the goal of being seeker-sensitive, is it not our conviction that the means are pure and
1: doctrinally sound by what we're teaching today on the mindset that man doesn't seek God, only God seeks man. <coughs> And so therefore we have to worship God the way God. To Eric's point,
0: there is a point at which we must defend our means, because they are not only doctrinally sound, but the the words in error. And therefore we must believe that Man doesn't seek God because of its sin nature. So the seeker becomes God. And if we if we compromise the means to be seeker sensitive, we're throwing away the infallibility of the Word.
1: Yeah, I agree with much of what you say. I think you're right. We don't. Nobody seeks God, right? Romans three. However, when um, <clears throat> when God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates the heart, then He gives us the ability and the desire to seek the Lord in the way that He is to be found. So. He's not going to be found just on top of some mountain because you feel good about it. He's going to be found in his ordinances of worship. Yeah, absolutely. The infallibility of Scripture. John?
0: Um, For the past uh, 120 years, there's been a lot of efforts on thinking about missiology, on how we approach missions, and how how we approach that. And worshiping God and God's given ordinances of how we should carry out worship, I assume would also include how we should carry out missions. Same thing. And distinguishing between the ordinances and the circumstances of missions and how you do that in different
1: contexts. Right. That's been, a, that's been a huge problem in the past because, for example, some American missionaries want to implement American cultural preferences into worship. It's a hard thing to avoid, which is one of the reasons why we like to have natives raised up to become leaders in the church. But yeah, distinguishing between elements of worship... Forms of worship and circumstances of worship. The elements are those things that God commands that have to be there for it to be worship. Prayer. You got to have prayer or it's not worship. The forms of worship. Well, what are you going to preach on? You got to have preaching, but what's the text? Well, that's chosen each week by the pastor. You got to have circumstances. You got to show up somewhere, sometime. And if you're a Latin church, show up in the morning. You know, we laugh because you show up for service and it's like an hour and a half later. Oh, we're not late. It was in the morning. We told you it was in the morning. So, anyway, duties. We are to worship and serve God as he's commanded. As we said, we must receive, observe, and keep pure and entire all the ordinances, negatively, disapprove, detest, oppose, the false worship. So as far as we're able to get to Eric's question, we are to remove all monuments of idolatry. And what this means is we receive his ordinances, recognizing them as binding and obligatory in worship and service. These are not just helpful things. These are binding things. As a Christian, when you come into the presence of the King, this is how you behave. We observe his ordinances, not only believe in them as true, but practice them. We engage in them. Don't absent yourself from the ordinances of worship, as is the habit of some. But as the day draws near, get together and encourage one another. Keep pure and entire his ordinances, avoiding all corruptions, adding to or taking away. At the same time, we do what we can to oppose all false worship, either in its object or its means. False worship refers not only to worship of a false god, but to worship by unlawful means. Now, that's a countercultural way to say it, right? Unlawful means. Criminal means. I hate to say it like that. But if you're introducing something into public worship of God in particular, and it's not commanded by God in His Word, it's unlawful, therefore criminal. He accounts those who break this second commandment as those who hate Him. That's strong. That's the reason to the second commandment. He esteems those who observe this commandment such as love him. That's incredible. It's our duty not only to testify against it, but practically to dissent to and abstain from participating in it. I had a friend as a boy. I, I wasn't a Christian. He was my neighborhood friend. He was a Catholic, and he took me to Mass one day. And I was fascinated, you know, I was not a believer or anything, but I was fascinated, but I didn't participate in the actual Mass. Not because I didn't think it was right, I had no idea, but they didn't want me to or wouldn't have let me, which is to their credit. But the point is, you don't participate in it. If you're at a wedding, sometimes I think at Roman Catholic weddings, they'll have the Mass there, you don't participate in that. You don't acknowledge it, you don't affirm it. Monuments of idolatry have to do with altars, images, temples, or other so-called sacred elements. And according to each one's place and calling, as we mentioned to Eric, that we do what we can in our sphere to remove such monuments. With whatever legitimate authority we have in family, church, or state, we must seek to remove them. So that's the idea. No false guilt if you can't, if you don't have the authority legitimately to just rip them out. No false guilt. You do what you can. It's God has placed you in this position. Any comments on that? Eric?
2: Sorry, sorry. This is just highly specific to me. So, my extended family is all Catholic. So, for every wedding that I would attend or funeral, many, how, like, how am I to participate and not participate? Or did I hear you?
1: Well, I think you should attend. It's your family. Like I went to um W. Flanakin's dad died early on in my ministry and I went to his funeral. I mean, I I, I want to support the family.
2: Right. Right. So like but like during the actual mass. You don't you don't partake.
1: Okay. Yeah, don't partake. Well
2: I'm not like okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. And you don't have to be obnoxious about it. <laughs> hey, you idolaters, I'm not partaking of this meal. <laughs> you don't have to do that. I'm just saying. They will notice. Right. Yeah. They will see that you're not partaking in it. Got it it's, speaks volumes. Uh, John.
0: So, um, why there's there's a lot of gray areas. Baptist church, this type of church, or even even different types of ceremonies, a homosexual wedding, for instance at different things, different It sounds like there's probably some things that are clear and some things that are less clear in terms of when you should or shouldn't abstain
1: and how much you should or shouldn't. Right, there is. It's very, it can be very great, especially now in our culture. (laughs) It's a conscience issue. Uh, My nephew was married to his husband and we did not attend the ceremony. Uh, we We just felt like we could not in good conscience because if you attend a wedding ceremony, what you're doing is saying, I am here in support of you. And I can't support that. Now, I can love my nephew. And we've invited them to dinner. And we've had occasions to be together. But I could not be a witness. Because when you're at a wedding, you are a witness. And you are supporting this more than just showing up. At a funeral, it's different. You are comforting the family. You know, um, that kind of thing. So hopefully that helps. Laura? Is singing
0: commanded?
1: Yes. Praise, sung prayers, absolutely. I've asked some of the younger kids, hey, do you sing in worship? And one of them said, no, no, you're violating your duty. You're you're supposed to sing.
0: Something can go to the extreme and become entertainment, and then it's not worshipful.
1: Well, that's, yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be reverently and in awe, and that's a subjective judgment, and the leaders of the church have to render that judgment, I think. and hopefully the leaders of your church are picking songs that you can sing in good conscience. But we're not, the, we're not the heart police. We can't read the heart. But we can say, hey, you're not singing. I didn't see your lips move. You're not you know, a ventriloquist or something like that. You have to sing. Sins forbidden, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed, should be not appointed in his word. Thomas Watson says, God is to be adored in the heart, not painted to the eye. That's one of typical Watson. He's a pithy saying just to say, look, it's not the sight, it's the ear and the heart that you adore God. We are not to add to or take away from the worship and ordinances God appointed in his word. Now these are several texts at different points in Scripture that points this out. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it. Take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. The whole Mosaic administration. Can't add to? Can't take away. There's the old covenant. Wisdom, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. No different under the new covenant. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He's serious about his word. And he's serious about what we do and don't do, especially in worship, but also in the service and discipleship. It's the height of ignorance and stupidity for someone to worship a piece of wood, stone, or marble. It's just stupid. I mean, no one thinks that way, not even the idolater. (laughs) Don't think that he makes something out of wood and he's worshiping the wood. That's not their idea. Idolaters do not worship the idol, but they worship the so-called God that they say is beyond the idol or behind the idol. They look at the idol as a means to get to their God or to manipulate their God. Okay? That's what's going on. The king took counsel and made two calves of gold, Jeroboam. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's the true God. He's focusing them on Yahweh. But he's saying you worship Yahweh by these golden calves. That's violating the second commandment. Any comments or questions on that? Oh, uh, Gretchen? So I'm I'm really literal, and um, when I read
0: the second commandment, sometimes I think it's
2: telling me that I shouldn't have a picture of a bird on this topic
1: or... Right, no, it's... Yeah, I, I can understand that, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying... The pictures and images that will help you worship or serve the deity. Pictures and images of the deity. And there's a slide here on Jesus and I know that's a big that's a big one. Pictures of Jesus. Right. Let's see if we're next. Oh, Rob? So the
0: that last, the Jeroboam, he's, he's saying what now? He's saying worship Yahweh through the calves of gold, or he's saying forget Yahweh, there's some other idol beyond the calves
1: of gold? Yahweh through the calves. Notice he says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up. This is the one who brought you up out of Egypt. That's Yahweh. He knows who Yahweh is. They know who Yahweh is. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt. Met Moses at the mount. So he's not denying Yahweh, but he's afraid that if they go back to Jerusalem, they're going to want to reunite with the Judean kingdom. So he's saying, what I'm going to do is keep him in Israel to worship Yahweh, but I'm going to have him worship him through these calves. John?
0: If a little bit after the question, possibly, even the, the scripture of the temple, there are different animals that are have to be sculpted or put the cherubim put into the the drapes or I think the oxen that are the basin of water that are on oxen. Good point. Very good point. prescribes that pictures of animals be, be Supplemental at different times, but
1: not as. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point. The only difference would be those are expressly commanded. So when God says to do something, you do it. That doesn't give us leave to do whatever we want elsewhere. But He says to make the cherubim, you know, or the animals and stuff. But yeah, that's a very good point. If it was a moral issue, then we'd say, well. They, they had like most, no no pictures of any animals. Right, right. Uh, Nadab and Abihu. I'm not going to spend time on this. They were smote for unauthorized fire. And the point is, unauthorized, not commanded. We don't know if they were drunk. We don't know if they were sincere. All it says is, they offered unauthorized fire. God didn't command it, so he killed them. That's serious. (laughs) Pictures of Jesus. John of Damascus, the great uh, Greek Orthodox theologian, stressed Christ's humanity in support of pictures of Jesus. This is the best argument, if you can call it that, for this type of thing. If you're going to try to argue for pictures of Jesus, okay, he's probably the best argument. We do not worship the humanity of Christ, however. We worship his deity. That's what's key. And his deity is united to his humanity, and that makes him Christ. So we cannot picture the deity, so there's no reason that we should picture Jesus. Prudentially. I mean, it just makes sense. But the second commandment also declares that we must not bow down to or serve images or likenesses. To bow down. What does that mean? Does it mean you simply bow down and worship, public worship? No. Otherwise, the second commandment would be redundant, right? First commandment, don't worship, don't worship idols. Bow down means using, trusting in, relying upon, as if somehow we needed these pictures of Jesus and could not do without them. It's an illiterate society. They can't read. We've got to teach them somehow. Let's make pictures of Jesus. No. Faith comes by hearing. We must not rely upon image, likeness, picture in our worship, our devotion, or our discipleship. Teaching, Sunday school, no pictures. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. A true picture of Jesus is impossible. You've never seen him, and neither have I. Whatever you come up with, it's not Jesus. It's impossible. Second, it's absurd. We don't need them. (laughs) He's given us everything in his word. Third, it's unlawful. We believe the second commandment prohibits them. Watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb and out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of any figure to help you worship the true and living God. They became fools, Paul says, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Pictures of Jesus. We shouldn't have them. They're impossible, they're absurd, and they're unlawful. So this is always the sticking issue with the second commandment, and I have to be honest with you, there are are ordained men in our Presbyterian and in our denomination who disagree with me on this, and they will have pictures in Sunday school materials and stuff. But this is one of the reasons why Great Commission's publications produces materials that have no pictures of Jesus, for the OPC and the PCA, because of the second commandment. Very important, because he accounts the breakers of this commandment such as hate him. And he esteems the observers of this commandment, such as love him. And you're responsible for the light you have been given. So there are many people out there who have never heard this, and God is gracious. He's not going to smite them down. But you and I, we've considered it. We're responsible for the light we've been given. Gretchen? So, a foul on and forgive me,
2: because I've been
0: pondering this for years, in Romans 1, they worship the creation rather than the creator, right? So when I appreciate nature, um, the beauty of God's creation, when I appreciate the woods or the snow or the animals or whatever, um, is that glorifying God or is that worshiping him? Like, what
1: is this so difference? Psalm, Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all those who delight in him. So, drawing pictures of snow, the creation, foxes, great dogs, um, no problem. You're studying. You're you're appreciating. When you start giving pictures of the deity, you're on sacred ground, and that's wrong. Rob?
2: Uh, what about like,
0: uh, oh, part of the a picture of some kind of miracle, a picture of, you know, events. And there's uh, a point where it's like, oh, it's historic. Okay, here's some
1: people walking through the desert, versus, oh, here's a miracle being performed and it almost defies, you know what I mean? Like- yeah, I don't have problems with scenes, biblical scenes. That doesn't bother me. I don't think that's against the Second Commandment, right. but don't put Jesus there. Right. right. You can have the whole scene of breaking the bread, just leave them blank. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Oh, Jim. So when I'm thinking about reading about his being scourged, about his carrying his cross, right. I'm not supposed to picture. No, that's that's okay. We talked about this in ladies' Bible study. That if you have an image in your mind produced by the Word of God, that's God ordained. But if you sit there in your quiet time and you say, I'm going to try to think of Jesus sitting on the throne. No. That's a difference. Those are vain speculations. But a biblical image is okay. Uh, Nate, did you have a can of worms? John? Uh, probably forget I Probably too late. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for your sensitivity to everybody. Let's close in prayer. Th- thank you, Father for guiding us and teaching us, particularly through your commandments and what it's like to live as free people in Christ. We pray that you'll help us to remain free as we seek sincerely to obey your commands. Prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.